Fans of Tennessee history might very well call Sam Houston their favorite Tennessean. Similarly, fans of Texas history might very well call Sam Houston their favorite Texan. Uh, Sam Houston's legacy, the shadow of his legacy, looms large over both of our states. I I feel like I can hardly drive down the street anywhere around here without seeing his name memorialized somewhere. And you may recall that Houston was a general, a congressman, a president of the Republic of Texas, a senator, and a governor of both Tennessee and Texas. But you might not know about his faith. When he moved from Tennessee to the Mexican state of Coeli and Texas, he was baptized into the Roman Catholic Church so that he could purchase property. It was less of a spiritual conversion and more of a legal one. But a few decades later, actually a couple decades later, he was converted and baptized, leaving Roman Catholicism for the Baptist Church, praise the Lord. Now, his personal life changed fairly dramatically. In fact, his closest friends were surprised at the changes in his personality and his habits. And perhaps among those changes, the one that may have surprised them most was his offer to pay for half of the local minister's annual salary. When asked why he wanted to do this, he simply replied, my pocketbook was baptized too. Now, I don't mention that story so that one person in our congregation will offer to pay half of my annual salary or half of Ryan's. Uh, I start with that story because it's such a wonderful example of radically ordinary Christian giving. It seems radical for one person to offer to pay half of someone's annual salary with no agenda, with no reservations attached or favors. But from the perspective of a baptized believer, this act of radical generosity is believable. Because the entirety of the Christian's life belongs to God, including our finances. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I want to clarify a couple things. You're here on an unusual Sunday. We don't typically spend an entire sermon talking about money or finances or tithing or giving. And and even less so, we typically don't spend four weeks of sermons making that the main topic of discussion. So, don't be alarmed. But we do think it, it is helpful sometimes to take time to talk about this subject with the topic so universally experienced by every believer. We all have to worry about money and stuff. And so universally challenging to navigate for believers. I mean, many of us have graduated high school and don't know what to do with our money from just a financial perspective, let alone a biblical one. So we think it's good from time to time to think about these things with our Bibles open, of course. And with that being said, I want to make clear that my prayer, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, is not, is not that you would feel guilty or obligated to give financially to our church. My prayer for you this morning is simply that this morning you would see the need for Jesus in your life. You would see the need to place your faith in Him alone. That you would see the great need that you have to trust Jesus with salvation. 
I pray simply that you will turn away from a life of sin and turn toward Jesus with a life of trust in him. See, we all need salvation. We all need salvation from many things, from a future eternity in hell. We all need salvation and freedom from a slavish following of sin in our lives. And and many of us also need freedom from a slavish, slavish obsession with money and a love for money and those things that money can buy. And I pray today, if you're an unbeliever here, that today would be the day of your salvation. I pray you hear this morning with open ears and an open heart that Jesus never sinned and he perfectly obeyed the law of God. That he died on a cross, not because he was deserving of death, but because he took the death that we all deserved as a result of our sin. And that he conquered death on the third day by being raised from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he bought your salvation, but you must receive it by abandoning your sin and embracing Jesus with faith. Let this morning be the morning, the day that you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. See, genuine saving faith in Jesus is personal faith in Jesus. Your parents' faith will not save you. Your pastor's faith will not save you. Your friend who drug you to church, will not, their faith will not save you. Your church's faith will not save you. Your community's faith will not save you. The only faith that will save you is your own personal faith in Christ alone. And this genuine faith is personal, but it is not private. Genuine faith is public faith. And if you have received salvation through a personal faith in Jesus but have not been baptized, then the thing I want you to hear this morning is you should follow Jesus' example and obey his command to be baptized. See, we make our personal faith public by receiving baptism amidst a cloud of witnesses. And if you believe but have not been baptized, I would encourage you to ask a pastor, whether it's me or Ryan or one of our lay elders, Raymond or Harold, I would encourage you to ask a pastor here about baptism before you leave this morning. Now, if you are a baptized believer, like Sam Houston was, then I hope today you see from the scriptures that your faith ought to change the entirety of your life, including your pocketbook, your bank account, and even your 401k. And this really shouldn't surprise us. We often claim that the scriptures are sufficient to teach us about gender, to teach us when life begins, to teach us about how church government should be structured, and to teach us many other important topics. So it shouldn't surprise us that the Bible speaks about one of the most controversial and most taboo topics, money and possessions. It actually speaks about money, possessions, income with alarming frequency. And it's alarming because Jesus taught that where your treasure is, There your heart will be also. See, when we take a look at our finances, budgets, our receipts, our hearts, our deepest desires are exposed. And when we look at at that, we might find that they do not line up with the Word of God. That when we take a look at our finances, we find out that our mouths may confess one thing when we're in church during a worship service, but our 
purchases and investments and savings confess something very different. Now, when we read the New Testament, we cannot help but be confronted with teaching on money. Sometimes it comes from the mouth of Jesus. Sometimes it's from one of his apostles. And this shouldn't be surprising to anyone who's read the Old Testament. Because if we look back to the Old Testament, we see time and time again God giving commands to his people how they are supposed to spend their money. And we even see the Old Testament prophets time and time again rebuking them for failing to follow those commands. And looking at the prophet Malachi's writing today, we clearly see an example of one of these rebukes. In Malachi's day, there was rampant unfaithfulness to God among the Israelites. One way they had been unfaithful was with their income. Here in verse 8, the Lord accuses them of robbing him. Now, the Israelites hadn't performed some elaborate heist like in Ocean's Eleven or something like that. They hadn't taken money contained within the temple treasury and stolen it. They merely neglected to pay their tithes and contributions. Now, God rightfully owned those tithes and contributions. In fact, he owned all of their income and possessions. They wouldn't have had anything if God hadn't given it to them or allowed them to have it. God is the ultimate owner of their stuff. And Psalm 24.1 makes this clear when it says, The earth and everything in it, the world and all its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Everything belongs to the Lord, including you, including me, including our possessions. As Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. We would better understand our relationship with our money our bank accounts, our investment portfolios, our finances, our paychecks, and our possessions, if we considered ourselves as managers of those things rather than owners of them. Perhaps it seems like a lesser calling to be a manager than an owner. Nobody ever really grew up saying, yeah, I want to manage a a large business or I want to manage a property that I live in. In every worldly arrangement, it seems more meaningful, more beneficial, more honorable to be the owner of something rather than just a manager. Why manage someone else's property and possessions when you can have your own? But we must consider what it is we manage. We manage God's possessions. What what God owns has infinitely more value than anything a mere human being could own. Managing God's possessions is far greater than owning possessions of our own and only ours. It is greater than full, untethered ownership. You know, there's a freedom that comes with knowing that we manage God's money. See, we don't need to identify with the number on our accounts, the cash in our wallets, or the stuff we accumulate We don't need to find value, meaning, or purpose in the possessions we have. We don't need to calculate our success based on raises, bonuses, or returns on our investments, or a really good year for the family business. In God's kingdom, he is far more concerned with what we do with the things he gives us than the amount 
of the things he gives us. And we can work with that. That gives us a whole lot of freedom. Since we are managers of God's money, we can see why the Lord accuses his people of robbing him when they do not pay their tithes and contributions. They keep for themselves what doesn't belong to them. See, God just gave it to them to pass it on. God doesn't call us to hoard every dollar that he gives us. He wants us to make sure it gets where it's supposed to go. God has called us to be managers of his money. And more than we want, he wants us to manage it by letting it go, by relinquishing control over it, and by relinquishing its control on us, by handing it over to someone else for a better purpose. In the time of Malachi, the Israelites weren't relinquishing control of their income as God had commanded them to. In verse 8, the Lord uses two specific terms, tithe and contribution, or offering, depending on the translation. Now, it's worth examining the meaning of of this word, especially tithe, when you consider that 60% of Christians either confess they don't know the word tithe, having never heard it, or they know it and they can't define it. Now, the term tithe literally meant a tenth. When paying a tithe, the Israelites were paying 10% of their income. However, that may make us think that they're just giving 10% of their income in the tithe, but the Israelites actually gave more than 10% to God. They didn't just have one tithe, they had multiple tithes. There were several tithes the Israelites were supposed to pay to God, and on top of that, they could contribute a free will offering. So when Malachi says in chapter 3, verse 8, tithes and contributions, or tithes and offerings, he is referring to both the commanded percentage-based contributions and the voluntary contributions of the Israelites. They were falling short in both areas. Today, many of us use the term tithe simply to refer to all that we give to the church. And this is helpful in some ways and less helpful in others. See, it's helpful because a tithe, meaning 10% of our income, if we were just taking the Old Testament meaning, isn't a bad place to start for giving. Giving 10% of our income is a great step in Christian giving, especially for young Christians or Christians who have lower incomes. A tithe stretches us to give more then we might be comfortable giving. Randy Alcorn talks about the tithe as the training wheels for giving. You know, I grew up, I, was, I rode a bike all the time when I was a kid. So much so that the neighborhood probably thought I was a nuisance because I would literally just ride up and down our neighborhood streets and I'd get waves from all the people and whatever. But I would do that for hours in the evening. I, I probably dro- rode through three different bikes over the time I was a kid before I finally uh, was done with it. And when I was riding, I would spend those hours going down those streets, and, and I could ride fast, and I could turn corners quickly, and I, I could even do very, very tiny wheelie. I wasn't very good at the tricks or anything like that. But I couldn't do those things when I started. I couldn't always ride fast or take sharp turners or do wheelies. I started with training wheels. I really wasn't even riding a bicycle at all. I had two wheels too many to be riding a bicycle. I was riding a quad cycle or something like that. But after slowly training with those extra wheels and growing in my ability to balance myself on the bike, I could remove the training wheels and truly ride my bike. 
And in that same way, after beginning with the tithe, we can progress to greater levels of giving. Now, the New Testament, I want to be very clear, doesn't directly command the tithe for Christians. Jesus speaks of the tithe in a positive light in Matthew 23, 23 and Luke eleven forty two, but it isn't clearly commanded by him of new covenant people. The New Testament doesn't directly command us to read the Bible every day either, but I never hesitate to encourage people to start the practice of daily Bible reading. In that same way, tithing is like a spiritual discipline, not a command, but a discipline that helps us develop a heart for giving, helps us lessen the grip money often has on our souls. And, and in the process it, even, process, it even allows us to help further God's kingdom work in this world. However, connecting the idea of giving to the local church with the Old Testament concept of tithing can also be unhelpful. It can actually narrow our understanding of giving. We can sometimes create a legalistic mindset for people. To be clear, I don't think discipline is legalism. As I just said, like daily Bible reading, giving 10% of our income to the church can be an incredibly useful discipline that creates a generous heart in us and diminishes a, a spirit of stinginess. However, for some consciences, tithing reeks of legalism. By equating Christian giving with a tithe, we can overburden people who feel they cannot give 10% of their income to the church and discourage them from giving anything at all. We can also give many Christians, and perhaps for me this is the larger concern, a false sense of security and piety about their giving when they give 10%. See, the standard for some of us isn't 10% of our income, but much more. For many Christians, especially in our country, the question shouldn't be whether we have to give 10%, but how much more than 10% should we give? Now let's consider the New Testament's teaching on the subject of giving for a moment. We can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Paul discusses the collection to be taken up when he visits. And David Guzik draws out four implications for Christians give, given from this passage. He says that Christian giving should be periodic, planned, private, and proportionate. See, Christians should give on a regular basis. Paul tells the Corinthians to do this on the first of every week. Our giving should be planned in advance. We shouldn't just dig through our wallets on Sunday morning hoping for an extra $5 or $20 bill to throw in the offering. That's, that's what I did when I was in high school. I just found whatever, and if I had 100 bucks worth of 20s in there, one of them would go in the plate. Not all of them, usually, but one of them. See, we should de decide in advance of Sunday how much we should give and, and actually follow through on it. And we shouldn't give for attention. We should give privately and, and keep the amount private. Paul wants the offering ready when he arrives so that none of the Corinthians will give in order to be seen as a generous giver by Paul. He doesn't want them to try to impress him. He wants them to be faithful in their giving. Finally, Paul tells the Corinthians to contribute according to how they have prospered. So our giving should be proportionate. And that, that means that if we have more, we give more. That's just a simple, simple equation for Christians. The more we have, the more we ought to give. Now, the wealthier among them should give more. But furthermore, we see in, in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 7, Paul writes this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, 
But whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must decide what he is to give in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but freely, for God loves a cheerful giver. From this passage, we learn that that Christian giving should be generous. The one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So we should be generous. We also learn that our giving should be free. Each Christian should decide in his or her own heart what they ought to give and contribute without reluctance, not under compulsion. So, you know, when the preacher stands over you and holds the offering plate and says, sow your seed, maybe that's not exactly what Paul had in mind. Finally, we see that our giving should be cheerful. And it's easy to see how our giving can be cheerful. Since our Lord Jesus Christ himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I mean, to put it in another way, it it really just means it will make you happier to give than to get. So we actually see the early church practicing some of these principles in the book of Acts. There Luke writes that all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 45. See, they were giving freely, generously, and cheerfully. Luke also records that many landowners in the church sold their property and brought the proceeds to the apostles. We see this in Acts chapter 4. These landowners planned ahead of time to give their profits from these land sales to the church, and they were giving proportionately based on what they had to give, even selling what they had to give more. They, they probably even gave it during a regular gathering of the church, since it says they laid it down at the apostles' feet. So they were practicing some of these principles as well. But we also see, if you turn from chapter 4 to chapter 5, the story of a couple that you may have heard of before. Now this couple had sold a piece of their property... And they came to the apostles and they gave them the proceeds, except they had kept back some of the prophets. Now, it implies in the text that the issue at, at hand was that they wanted to look good like the other landowners. So they presented themselves as if they had sold their property and gave 100% of the proceeds to the church. But instead, they kept some back. And one at a time, one comes into the room and is killed. Not, not by anyone attacking them, but by the Lord striking them dead. And then the next comes in the room, and uh, I didn't plan on saying this, but this is one of my favorite stories, simply because I think this is such an intense moment where Peter says to him, the feet of the ones who dragged out your husband are standing at the door. That's what he tells, and then dead. It's insane. But that's what we see. And, and it's not just life that's at stake. When it comes to these financial issues, there's actually an eternity at stake. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 19, verse 24. We also learn in the New Testament how vastly different God's understanding of money and possessions are from ours. 
In Mark 12, Jesus watches one day as many people gather and they're contributing to the temple treasury. And among them, several rich people contribute large sums. And then amidst all of this, a poor widow comes and contributes two small copper coins, which weren't worth much at all. And in response to this, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she out of her poverty put in everything, all she had to live on. If we are going to submit our finances to the Lordship of Christ, then we have to reckon with the fact that God sees a church member who gives their only $10 to the church as giving more than the person who pays for a third of the budget but makes seven figures. The person who gives out of their poverty, gives all that they have, is sacrificially giving to a point of concern, has given more even if it's a smaller number in God's eyes. So I ask you this. What is the higher standard? An Old Testament tithe or New Testament giving? The New Testament doesn't command a tithe, but it does call us to give to the church regularly, premeditatedly, meaning we planned it ahead of time, proportionately, privately, generously, freely, and cheerfully. We should be radical in our willingness to fund God's church. I mean, some early Christians, we just read, were selling property to fund God's work. Now, all of this New Testament teaching coincides with what we learn in Malachi. We manage God's money. So we ought to prioritize returning some of it to him. So Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, the Lord commands Israel to bring in the full tithe so that there would be food in the house. God commands uh, the Levitical tithe, one of the tithes placed on Israel, for the purposes of providing for the priest and Levites who serve the congregation. This is utterly astonishing if you go read the book of Malachi. It is utterly astonishing when you consider the context of Malachi chapter 3, because one chapter before in Malachi chapter 1, we read this, the Lord rebuking the priest saying in Malachi 2.13, and now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and I apologize, spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings." And you shall be taken away with it. I figured I could read that since it was God talking. The Lord says that he will spread the dung of the priest offerings on their faces. Yet, he still rebukes Israel for not contributing to the needs of the priest in Malachi chapter 3 verse 10. You know, we can often feel that our responsibility to give to the church is conditional based on our preferences, based on our, our opinions, based on the church's leadership, its staff, its budget, its faults or failures, its fruits or lack thereof. We, we often, I've seen in churches, will increase our giving when we're happy 
and lower it when we're not. We don't like the budget or a staff member, so we designate where our money goes instead. I've been there. I've felt that before. It is a great temptation for us. But brothers and sisters, that is just simply not what Scripture teaches at all. I had one of our church members uh, say to me a few weeks ago that they had written many checks to FBA over the years, but I didn't give a penny to the church. I gave it all to the Lord. You know, if we truly give to the Lord when we're giving to the church, then I think we would be wrong to modify our giving based on circumstances within the church. And if you're visiting from another church, this applies to your local church as well. See, our faithfulness as Christian givers is not determined by whether we, we really like the preaching or, or whether we love the pastors or whether we think things are moving in the right direction. Our faithfulness as Christian givers, when we stand before God, it is proven in those moments when we give our church our money, our possessions, our income, the percentage of it, despite our disagreements with leadership, despite our disagreements with current distribution of funds, despite our, that's when our true Christian giving hearts are displayed and proven, when we are able to give when we don't really feel like it. We shouldn't condition our giving based on temporary circumstances within a church. And I, I understand that there are those times that you feel so strongly about something. Listen, if for a moment our church was giving money, or any church that I've ever attended was giving money to, a, to an entity that supported abortions, for instance, I, I would, one, go to my leadership and say, what is going on? And then the second thing I would do, if they were unwilling to change their opinion on it, I would leave the church, just to be quite honest. I'm not going to give my money to that. But when they decide that a little bit more money should go to kids' ministry than the, children's ministry, or than the youth ministry, I'm not going to balk at that personally. See, if our giving is truly between us and the Lord, then, then it shouldn't be lowered or withheld or designated in the face of circumstances outside of ourselves. We give as the Lord would have us, and we, lease, we leave the use of those funds to the Lord too. Now, the Israelites' tithes were used to fund ministry in the temple. Similar, similar, similarly, I can't speak this morning, I apologize. Our regular contributions to the church make possible the Lord's ministry in and through the church. Our contributions cover the expenses of many things. They, they pay for staff, for building upkeep and cleaning, for energy bills to keep the lights on and the heat running in the winter, and for missions locally and across the globe. And we can only fund these expenses if we receive the money to do so. Our contributions are needed to make sure the church can function. Now, now you may be thinking this, I've thought this before, too. I've had people come to me with this concern in previous churches I've served in. You may be thinking that your money might be better used with different organizations than the local church. In in response, I simply point you to Jesus' own words. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, the church is the only institution for which Jesus promised the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And to be clear, I want to clarify because I love this passage for many reasons. This isn't defensive. 
We aren't hiding ourselves and hell is trying to attack. Gates are for defending. Hell is on the defense. The church is attacking. And the church is the only institution for which the Lord Jesus Christ promised that when we attack hell and Satan and death and sin and evil in this world, it is the only institution for which we know the gates of hell will not prevail. That the church can infiltrate those gates. The church is the only institution that we have a sure promise that it has the power to overcome hell's defenses. So I just want you personally, again, each one must decide in his own heart. I just want you to consider, where will your money, where will my money, where will our money be most fruitful? I think Jesus at the end of the day tells us, it's the church. And there are plenty of good parachurch ministries out there. There are plenty of good organizations out there. I've personally partnered with a few. We've had some come speak here. You know, I know of the good things, organizations like the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Young Life, Wycliffe Bible Translators, the International Mission Board, all of them do. And, And I'm not saying we don't support them. I'm not saying we don't give to them. But I think even even when we do give to them, it's not the first priority in giving. Because Jesus never promised that they can take on hell and win. He promised that of only one institution, the church. And I, and I will bank on that promise. Finally, when we prioritize giving to, the, to God and his church, we make room for God to bless us. In Malachi 3, 9, and 10, this passage we read this morning, the Lord says, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He says that the Israelites are cursed because of their unfaithfulness to give. They are cursed because they have robbed God, keeping for themselves what they should have returned. And he then challenges the Israelites to test him. Go ahead. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Give the full amount you owe me. See if I won't bless you abundantly then. And and I want to be clear about two things. You know, in many places throughout Scripture, the general principle, I say general very on purpose, the general principle, give more, get more, has some merit to it. Which makes some sense. Why would God want to give more to someone who is unfaithful to manage what they already have? It also makes sense that giving makes room for God to bless because the tight-fisted hand cannot open up to receive more. But, but even then, but even then we see that it's not directly proportional. But we do have some general ideas that giving makes room for God to give and to bless. But I also want to be abundantly clear that faithful giving might not result in raises, bonuses, or some long-lost uncle leaving you a fat inheritance. However, when we think about our money and our possessions with eternity in view, I think we realize that we will be abundantly blessed by our giving. See, our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us that if we are unfaithful in little, we will, sorry, if we are faithful in little, we will be faithful over much. And we can expect that if not in this life, God will set the faithful over much in the resurrected life. 
Keeping eternity in view is helpful, I think, when it comes to managing our, our money. The money that God has allowed us to manage for him and our possessions. Do I think God wants us to enjoy his creation and even to spend some of our money on that? Sure I do. Do, do I think he's happy for us to buy some things that help us enjoy his world? Absolutely. But when considering eternity, we realize that we don't have just one life to enjoy things. We don't have just one chance to climb great mountains. We don't have just one life to experience everything on that bucket list of ours. We have an eternity. When Jesus returns, he will return bodily and he will resurrect our bodies and our creation. We will have an eternity to enjoy the things that God has made. But do you know what we don't have an eternity to do? We don't have an eternity to evangelize the lost. We do not have an eternity to serve the afflicted and downtrodden, to send missionaries to unreached people groups, to disciple the saved, or to prepare people for eternity. It will be too late. Our opportunity to do gospel work, to do that kingdom-expanding work that will save souls is limited to this life now. Fun, entertainment, those things aren't limited. But seeing souls saved for Christ is. And if we truly believe in the world to come, and it's a temptation of mine as much as yours not to believe in those promises, if we believe truly in the world to come, wouldn't it make sense to prioritize funding missions over an extra vacation, funding evangelism opportunities over new furniture, funding your local church over a new car, now, I'm not saying that those purchases are meaningless or sinful. I, I am not. But are they of eternal value? Are you truly using your money to invest in eternity? When you're sitting at the banquet, banquet in heaven, I, I hope you sit next to someone who had the Bible in their language because of your giving. I hope you sit next to someone who had a pastor to comfort them in their time of tragedy because you gave to your church. I hope you have a person who had the gospel preached to them that woke up their soul from its slumber of ignorance and sin because you were giving to the work of the church. And when that day comes, maybe I'm crazy, I genuinely just don't think any of us will say, well, now that I'm up here, I think I really got out of hand down there. I should not have given so much. If I could do it over again, I would give less. I, I'm just, maybe I'm crazy. I don't think anyone's going to be saying that. I think we need to keep eternity in view. We need to prioritize bringing God glory and expanding His kingdom, even, even by how we use our pocketbooks. Like many of you, this is an area that I need to grow in. I've been more challenged in preparing. I knew I was preaching this sermon more than a month ago. I've been more challenged in my own giving, maybe than any other time in my life, when I was looking at what the Scripture teaches, not just on tithing, but on Christian giving overall. It's convicting. It's challenging. But I hope you see the need that I do to manage our money with God looking over our shoulder. It can be tempting can be tempting not to do that. Like the Israelites, 
when we feel the money isn't being put to good use, it's very tempting, and it may even be something we do, it's very tempting to withhold our contributions, to withdraw our giving, to withdraw our time and our service, to maybe even withdraw our membership in our local church. But the Lord challenges us here that when we struggle, when we see what it looks like when the world looks like it's being cursed, when the church looks like it's being cursed, those are the times God doesn't say, withhold. He says, double down. Bring the full contribution. Don't hold anything back. Give it your all. See if I won't bless you all then, says the Lord. Not because we want to meet some budget. Not because we want to buy some fancy new toys. Because we all should want to be faithful to the Lord in every area of our life, even in our giving, and we'll let the Lord handle the rest. Brothers and sisters, are you going to let your circumstances dictate your faithfulness to God? Or are you going to hold nothing back? The Lord demands our all. He, he demands our complete submission to his word, our complete submission to his ways. And sure, when we fail, there is forgiveness there. But because of the salvation we were given freely, we ought to live with thanksgiving in our hearts and obedience on our minds. Will we submit our wallets to him along with everything else or not? Let's pray.